0: Chapter 35 of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey. Olive will acknowledge anything. Evil, like a rolling stone upon a mountaintop, a child may first impel. A giant cannot stop. By despising himself too much, a man comes to be worthy of his own contempt. Amiel. Audrey was sure it was the east wind that made everyone so unlike themselves the next morning. Bailey had told her that the wind was decidedly easterly, or perhaps, more strictly speaking, northeast. She had run down the garden to speak to him about some plants, and perhaps with some intention of intercepting Cyril when he went across to breakfast, and they had had quite a confabulation on the subject. But when she got back to the house, she found rather a subdued state of things. Mrs. Ross looked tired. Her husband had kept her awake by his restlessness, and she had got it firmly in her mind, that a fit of gout was impending. Dr. Ross had once had a touch of gout, a very slight touch to be sure, but it had given him a wholesome fear of the complaint, and had implanted in him a deep distrust of other men's port wine, and his devoted wife had never forgotten the circumstance. And I am sure, she observed in an undertone to her daughter, that if I were not quite certain that there is nothing troubling your father, for of course he would have told me of it at once. "'I should have said there was something on his mind. "'He tossed and groaned so. "'But mark my words, Audrey, "'it is his old enemy, the gout, "'and if only I could induce him to speak to Dr. Pilkington, "'he might ward it off still.' "'What is it that you are telling the child, Emmy?' "'asked the doctor, who had very sharp ears. "'Gout, stuff and nonsense, I never was better in my life.' "'I think your complexion looks a little sallow this morning, John,' "'returned Mrs. Ross.' rather timidly, for she knew her husband's objection to any form of ailment. "'I'm sure you never closed your eyes all night.' But at this Dr. Ross pished impatiently, and it was then that Audrey hazarded her brilliant suggestion about the east wind. "'Michael looks rather limp, too,' she went on, "'and he never could endure an east wind.' "'Have your own way, Audrey,' returned her cousin good-humouredly, but neither to her nor to Mrs. Ross, Did he confess that his night had been sleepless too? When he had finished this breakfast, he went round to the stables, where Dr. Ross joined him. He had ordered the dog cart to be got ready for him, and he told the groom that there was no need to bring it round to the front door. Dr. Ross watched him silently as he drew on his driving gloves and turned up the collar of his coat. You will have a cold drive, I'm afraid, he said at last, as Michael took the reins and the brown mare began to fidget. Come to my study the moment you get back and Michael nodded. Much as he disliked the business before him, he was anxious to get it over, so he drove as fast as possible, and as the mare was fresh and skittish, she gave him plenty to think about, and he was quite warm with the exertion of holding her in and restraining her playful antics by the time he pulled up at the village inn, which went by the name of the Cat and Fiddle. Here he had the mare put up while he walked down the one main street of Braille, and down a lane or two, until he came to Mr. O'Brien's sequestered cottage. Mr. O'Brien opened the door himself. When he saw Michael, he shook his head with an air of profound sadness and led the way, without speaking, into the parlour where he usually sat and where Sam was basking before the fire after the luxurious habit of cats. He got up, however, and rubbed his sleek head against Michael's knee as he sat down in the black elbow chair, but Mr. O'Brien still stood on the rug, shaking his head sadly. You have come, Captain. I made up my mind you would come today. To get at the right of it, I told Matt, so depend upon it. The Captain will look us up. I said to him, he is a man of action, and he is not likely he will let the grass grow under his feet. You will be round, sure enough, and you will have to be ready with your answers. Where is your brother, Mr. O'Brien? He's gone out for a bit, but he will be back presently. I told him not to go far. You'll be wanted. You may take my word for it. You'll be wanted, Matt, I told him and then he promised he would be round directly. I am afraid this fare has been a great shock to you, Mr. O'Brien. Miss Ross once told me that you had no idea whom your brother married. Well, sir, I can't say as much as that. Matt told me that the name of the girl he was going to wed was Olive Carrick, and that she came with respectable people, but he would not tell me much more than that. And now I put it to you, Captain, how was I to know that any woman would falsify her husband's name, and that she should be living close to my doors, as one might say? for what is a matter of three miles, it gave me a sort of shiver, and I have not properly got rid of it yet, and I think of that dear young creature whom Susan and me have always loved, that she should be entrapped through that woman's falseness into an engagement with Matt's son. It goes to my heart, it does indeed, Captain, to see that dear sweet lady dragged into a connection that will only disgrace her. My cousin would think it no disgrace to be connected with you, Mr. O'Brien. "'for he knew too well Audrey's large-mindedness "'and absence of conventionality. "'She has always looked upon you as her friend. "'Thank you, Captain, that is very handsomely said, "'and I wish my Prissy could have heard it, "'for she has done nothing but cry since the news reached her. "'Rachel refusing to be comforted "'is nothing compared to Prissy when the mood is on her. "'She literally waters all her meals with her tears. "'Yes, you mean it handsomely, "'but I'm an old man, Captain Burnett.' And I know the world a bit, and I have the sense to see that Thomas O'Brien, honest and painstaking as he may be, is no fit connection for Dr. Ross's daughter, why to think she might be my niece and call me uncle. And here the old man's face, flushed as he spoke, it is not right, it is not as it should be, she must give him up, she must indeed, Captain. I am afraid Dr. Ross holds that opinion, Mr. O'Brien. You will understand that he means no disrespect to you, but it is simply intolerable to him that any daughter of his should marry Matthew O'Brien's son. You see, I am speaking very plainly. Yes, sir, and I am speaking just as plainly to you. In this sort of case, it is no use beating about the bush. Matt has made his bed, and he must just lie in it, and his children, heaven help them poor young things, must just lie in theirs too. Dear dear to think that when she was talking to me so pleasantly about Molly and Kester, and what is her lad's name, that neither she nor I had an idea that she was speaking to their uncle. There it beats me, Captain, it does indeed. And there were tears in her old man's eyes. I'm afraid there is heavy trouble in store for them all, and for my cousin, too. She would be very unwilling to give up a Blake. Humph. That is what he calls himself. Well she was always faithful, Captain. She is made of good stout stuff, and that sort wears best in the long run. If she is a bit difficult, send her to me and I'll talk to her. I will put things before her in a light she won't be able to resist. In spite of the sadness of the conversation, Michael could hardly forbear a smile. I hardly know what you would say to her, Mr. O'Brien. You leave that to me, Captain. It is best not to be too knowing about things. But I don't mind telling you one thing that I would say. My dear young lady, you have been a good and true friend to Thomas O'Brien, and I am grateful and proud to call you my friend, but I will not have you for my niece. Matt's son may be good as gold. But I have nothing to say against the poor lad, who, after all, is my own flesh and blood, but it would be a sin and shame to wed him when his father picked oakum in a felon's cell. Don't you think that'll fetch her, sir? Women are mostly proud, and like their men to have clean hands, and I'll say it too and here Mr. O'Brien thumped the arm of his chair so emphatically that Sam woke and uttered a reproachful mew. "'I hope you will not be put to the pain of saying this to her,' returned Michael in a low voice. What a fine old fellow this was. He wondered what Dr. Ross would say when he repeated this speech to him. Nature must have intended Tom O'Brien for a gentleman. Could anything be more touching than the way he sought to shield his girlfriend? even putting aside the natural claims of his own flesh and blood to prevent her from being sullied by any contact with him and his. Michael felt as though he longed to shake hands with him and tell him how he honoured and respected him, but he instinctively felt that any such testimony would hardly be understood. One word he did venture to say, I think it is very good of you to take our side. Nay, sir, I can see an art of goodness in it. As my Susan used to say, you should not praise people for walking along a straight road and for not taking the first crooked path that offers itself. Susan and I thought alike there. We were neither of us fond of crooked turnings. There can only be one right and one wrong Tom, as she would say. And I hope, Captain, that I shall always tell the truth and shame the devil as long as I am a living man. I should think there would be no doubt of that, returned Michael heartily and then a faint smile crossed the old man's face. But it faded in a moment, as footsteps sounded in the passage outside. That is Matt. He's kept his word in coming back so soon. I'd better fetch him in, and then you'll get it over. You need not leave the room, Mr. O'Brien. This is your business as well as ours. I know it, sir, but thank you kindly. I feel as if I had said my say, and that I may as well bide quiet with Prissy. Matt has had it all out with me. We were up half the night talking. I always hoped I was a Christian, Captain, but I doubt when I think of the words I spoke about that woman. She married that poor lad to serve her own purposes and to spite her lover, and while he doted on her, she just looked down on him and scouted his people because they were in trade. She pretty nearly ruined him with her fine lady-like ways and with pestering him for money that he had not got. And then, when he made that slip of his and was almost crazy with the sin and the shame, she just gives him up, but have nothing more to do with him. And that is the woman that the Almighty made so fair outside that our poor foolish lad went half wild for the love of her. No, sir, if you'll excuse me, I will just send Matt along and keep in the background a bit. It makes me grind my teeth with pain and anger to hear how she treated the poor fellow, almost driving him mad with her bitter tongue. Then in that case, I will certainly not keep you. And as he spoke, he noticed how the vigorous old man seemed to totter as he rose from his chair but he only shook his head with the same gentle smile as Michael offered him his arm. Nay, Captain, this is not needed. I'm only a bit shaken with all that's passed, and you must give me time to right myself. Now I will send Matt in, and when you have finished, I'll see you again. Michael did not have to wait long. He had only crossed the room to look at a photograph of Susan O'Brien, which always stood on a little round table in the corner, when he found the light suddenly intercepted as Matthew O'Brien's tall figure blocked up the little window. To his surprise, Matt commenced the conversation quite easily. You were looking at Susan, Captain Bennett. That was taken twelve or thirteen years ago. Isn't it a coin true face? That is better than the handsome one in the long run. He does not look as though she would desert a man, when his head is under water, eh, hey, Captain? No, indeed, returned Michael, falling at once into the other man's humor. Mrs O'Brien must have been a thoroughly good woman, for her husband never seems to have got over her loss. He's always talking about her. I so like Tom. He was never given to keep a silent tongue in his head. He must always speak out his thoughts, good or bad. That is rather different than me. Why, I've often spent days without opening my mouth, except to call to my dog. I think Tom finds it a relief to talk. The sound of his own tongue soothes him. Very likely sit down, Mr. O'Brien. "'The fireside is rather a pleasant place this bitter March day.' "'As you like,' returned Matt indifferently. "'For myself I prefer to stand.' "'And as he spoke he popped his tall figure against the wooden mantelpiece "'and, half shouldering his face with one arm, looked down into the blaze.
1: "'In this
0: attitude Michael could only see his side face, "'and he was startled at the strong likeness to Cyril. The profile was nearly as finely cut, and it was only when he turned his full face that the resemblance ceased to be so striking. Cyril had the same dark eyes and low, broad forehead, but his beautifully formed mouth and chin were very different from his father's, which expressed far too clearly a weak, resolute character, but he was a handsome man, and in spite of his shabby coat there was something almost distinguished in his appearance. Anyone seeing the man for the first time would have guessed he had a story. Very probably, looking at his broad chest and closely cropped grey hair and black moustache, they would have taken him for a soldier, as Michael did. Somehow he found it a little difficult to begin the conversation. He hoped Matthew O'Brien would speak again, but he seemed disinclined to break the silence that had grown up between them. "'You're not much like your brother, Mr. O'Brien.' "'No, sir.' Tom and I are not much alike, and more's the pity. Tom has been an honest man all his life. Michael was about to reply that that was not saying much in his favour, but he felt that under the circumstances this would be awkward, so he held his peace. There aren't many men to be Tom, continued Matt. Few folk would be so staunch to their own flesh and blood, and only disgrace would come of it. But Tom is too fine-hearted to trample on a fellow when he is down and other folk are crying, Fie, for shame on him. Would you believe it, sir, stretching out a sinewy, thin hand as he spoke, that that brother of mine never said an unkind word to me in my life, and when I came back to him that night, feeling none too sure of my welcome, it was just a grip of the hand and, Come in, my lad, as though I were the young chap I used to be coming home to spend my holiday with him and Susan.' I think your brother one of the best men living, Mr. O'Brien. So he is, sir, and so he is. But you have not come all this way to talk about Tom." And here he paused, and again the shielding hand went over his eyes, and Michael could see a twitching of the mouth under the moustache. It is about Olive that you want to see me. You are right. Will you kindly give me the date and place of your marriage? Matthew O'Brien nodded and drew a folded paper from his breast pocket. There it is. Tom told me I'd better write it down in black and white to save us all trouble. I've put down the date and the name of the church where we were married. Strange to say I can even recollect the name of the parson who did the job. He was a little black-haired man and his name was Craven. It was a runaway match, you know. Olive was stopping with some friends in Dublin and I met her early one morning and took her to St. Patrick's. We'll find it all right in the register. Matthew, Robert O'Brien and Olive Carrick. There were only two witnesses, an old pew-opener and a friend of mine, Edgar Boyle. Boyle is dead now, poor chap, but you'll find his name all right. Can you tell me also, Mr. O'Brien, where I can find the entries of your children's baptism? It may be necessary for them to know this some day. Well, sir, I believe I can satisfy you on that point too. We were living at Stoke Newington when the children were born. You'll find their names in the register at St. Philip's. Cyril Langton Carrick, that was a bit of her pride. She wanted the boy to have her family name. Kester and Mary Olivia, my little Molly, as we meant to call her. I have not seen her since she was a baby. And here Michael was sure Matt dashed away a tear. It was a barbarous thing to rob me of my children, and I was so fond of the little chaps too. I think I took most to Kester. He was such a cunning, clever little rogue, and his mother did not make half the fuss about him that she did about Cyril. She has acknowledged that to me. I don't doubt it, sir. Olive will acknowledge anything. She will have her flare up one minute and frighten you to death with her tantrums. In the next, she will be as placid and sweet-tongued as ever. She was never the same for two days running. It would be always some scheme or other, something for which she needed money. I used to tell her she never opened her lips to me, except to ask me for money, and more betide me if I told her I was hard up. But she had money of her own. Yes, she muddled it away. She was always a bad manager. I never saw such a woman, and Biddy was just as bad. They might have had a comfortable home, and I might have kept out of trouble if she had listened to me. But I might as well have spoken to that wall. But surely it was your duty as her husband to restrain her. Her son manages her quite easily now. Perhaps so, a little sullenly. Maybe she cares for her son, though she turned against her husband. Her heart was always like flintstone to me. I was afraid of her, Captain Burnett, and she knew it, and that gave her a handle over me. A man ought not to fear his own wife. It is against nature. But there, when she looked at me in her cold, contemptuous way, and dared me to dictate to her, I felt all my courage ooze out of me. I could have struck her when she looked at me like that, and I think she wanted me to, just to make out a case against me. But fool that I was, I was too fond of her and the children to do it. I bore it all and perilled my good name for her sake. And this is how she has treated me. Spurned me away from her as though I were a dog. She has not been a good wife to you. But all the same I do not understand why you took her at her word. Did you never in all these years make an effort to be reconciled with her for the sake of your children? You do not know, Olive, when you put such a question. There will be no reconciliation possible in this world. I may compel her to own herself my wife, but I could not force her to say a kind word to me. She talked me over into setting her free and made me promise not to hunt her out. It got over me. Olive is a rare talker. She told me it would be better for the little chaps not to bear their father's name. She would take them away and bring them up to be good, honest men. And she would take care no shame should ever touch them. And would you believe it, sir, I was so cowed and broken with the thought of all those years I was to spend in prison, that for the time I agreed with her, it was just as though I had made her a promise to commit suicide. I was to let her and the children go, and not to put in my claims when they set me free. And as she talked and I answered her, it seemed to me as though Matt O'Brien were already dead.